1: Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: What's up? This is Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. Anybody who knows this podcast is well aware that our interviews can last for hours. So often, we split them into two parts. It also gives listeners a suspenseful reason to come back next week or check their podcast feed for more episodes. Back in 2022, we sat down with L.A. Reid for what became a rare three-part interview. The third and final part of L.A. Reid's epic QLS interview covers the founding of LaFace Records and some rarely discussed history surrounding OutKast and TLC. Please rate, like, and subscribe to this on your podcast feeds. Check back for new episodes and follow our new YouTube page at QLS.
1: At the time, in 88, 89, I wouldn't have thought, hey, Atlanta is a great place to build my empire. What did you see in Atlanta that I, I we didn't see? Because at the time, the only artist I knew that lived in Atlanta was Peebo Bryson.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: you changed everything. You changed the whole culture of a city. Yeah, so Talk how did you, it. why did you choose Atlanta? And how did you choose Atlanta? Why and how?
4: It was a combination. It was myself, Babyface, and Pebbles. All three of us were in the studio uh, on Kawanga Boulevard in a studio called Ilumba. And we collectively decided that we wanted to leave. We wanted to move out of LA uh, for various reasons. Okay, why? One was, um, we're concerned about earthquakes, seriously. And mm. that sounds kind of crazy. Mm. Um, right, it's real. We were concerned about cost of living. Okay. And we had just started to make some money and we wanted to know how to stretch that, right? uh and so so the idea was let's and we just come off tour like we just finished that last tour and we've been all over the country and we didn't think la was like the only place on earth so we had a conversation about moving so we put a map on the wall we had a very serious conversation about moving. yeah that's what to say you put a map out very serious conversation we put a map on the wall (laughs) uh, a, a, a map of the united states and First, we looked at everyone's hometown. Where should we go? Should we go to the Bay Area where Pebbles is from? Oh, I thought she
0: was from Atlanta. Damn. She's
4: from the Bay. We were like, nah. Wow. We Indianapolis, where Babyface is from. Nah. Nah. Cincinnati, where I'm from. Mm -mm. Nah. Then we were like, New York. Nah. And then Kenny, we thought about our experiences being in New York and writing. And we were like, nah, we don't write that well in New York. we got it Dallas big homes big great lifestyle
3: Mm.
4: one of us and I don't remember who said Atlanta and all I remember all of us saying yes because Atlanta if you're on tour when you go through Atlanta that's like the Mecca right everything was like upscale it was like Everything from the um, pre Olympics. Oh, yeah. This was in 88. This is 88. 88. Yeah. I mean, Olympics, they didn't even have skyscrapers. You guys and Bobby Brown, I'll never understand. Like, we all went together. Why would y'all do that? We picked Atlanta because we knew we could live well. I'm being honest, right? We just knew we could live. We went down, looked at some houses, and the house prices, the real estate prices, like, we were like, we can live, we can live well down here. This place is dope. So we, I called Irving Azoff, who was running MCA at the time, who we thought we were gonna make the LaFace deal with. And I said, Irving, I have an idea. He said, what's the idea? I said, how's this sound? Motown of the South, Ooh. LaFace Records, Atlanta, Georgia. And he said, where do I sign? And that's how it started. And he gave us the seed money to move, book the planes, book the hotels, found us a lawyer, found us a real estate agent. And and we went down and we literally stayed there until we found homes. And where did Clive Davis come in the picture? Irving quit. (laughs) Irving Irving quit working at MCA. Oh. He he left the company, right? So enter Clarence Avon.
0: Yes, Godfather.
4: So Clarence Avon, who had always been there, Right, Clarence says, well, if you're not doing it with Irving, then I'm going to introduce you to Jerry Moss, David Geffen, uh, and all of the various players. And we met everybody, and everybody was interested. Mo Austin, we met everybody. How did you get out the contract, though? You signed on the dotted line, no? No, we didn't sign anything. We just got a producer advances. Cause we made all of our hits at MCA. So we had a lot of money in the pipeline. So he just basically gave us the money that we were owed. And you didn't have to recoup it back or repay it back or anything? We never signed one thing. No, wow, um, no, we didn't sign anything. We just, and, and it was a lot of money, you know, especially at that time. I can imagine. Yeah. You know, um, so Clarence introduced us to everybody. And when I was 18 years old, I read this book. By this great record executive named clive davis the yellow book i'm like i don't even know why i don't even know why 18 19 years old why am i reading about a record executive i didn't even know why but there was a photo of him sitting at the beverly hills hotel pool with sly and the family with sly stone and i was like i want to be that guy right not sly i want to be the guy sitting next to sly right, right. Uh, so this is my big opportunity to meet the great clive davis And Clarence set it up. We walked into the bungalow at the Beverly Hills hotel to meet Clive Davis. And my mind was already made up. I was like, I'm doing this with Clive, but I couldn't say that I couldn't play. Mm. I couldn't show the hand. And I didn't actually know how face felt about it at the time. You know, I knew face really wanted to work on Whitney. Um, so it just all felt right. We thought we were going to do it with David Geffen who said, Yes to our deal, and then he came back and said, "Actually, no, I don't want to do it." And his reasoning was, "I'm not committed to the genre." It wasn't bad at all. It was very honest. He was like, "I'm a rock I, guy. I say, "Yeah, he ain't waste our time." He ain't waste that time. He's like, right. "That's
1: funny, Amir." Damn Reed. right, he wasn't
4: because
0: yeah,
1: we I'm were just, his <laughs> guinea pigs.
0: <laughs> That's what I was thinking.
1: I was like, "Oh wow!" Now I'm just thinking, like, "Wow, I could have signed to a label. I could have signed to LaFace." In nineteen ninety-three, Wendy Goldstein had just went to like I'm now imagining <laughs> the alt- alternate lifetime where outcast needs help and the roots are the one. Oh ones my are god. Like. <laughs> 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 and the roots are the ones that are t- <laughs> Oh, that's hot. That's wow. actually
4: really hot. Wow. That's hot. Man, that's
1: hot. I have hot. a while we
2: all, I have a very specific outcast question. So um I want you to talk about the differences in working with uh between Dre. And, and big boy, I really study. Big boy is somebody that I really look at, and I look at a lot of the moves in his career, and they seem to be a direct reflection of you know, you know, his relationship with you. So I want to know. He talks. He's always spoken very highly yeah, of you and man, loves stuff. Him so much. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, how have you? How's that relationship between those two guys uh, over the years? How's that developed?
4: It's always been really good. And and the truth is, I think it might have been one of my better relationships because I didn't know their music as well. Like like mm. I couldn't tamper. Do you know what I mean?
3: Mm-hmm. Like TLC uh-huh.
4: makes a record, I have a very strong opinion about it. Or or anybody, you know, uh, Usher makes a record, I have a very strong opinion about it. But with Outkast, they were such they were such originals that if they felt passionately about it, my job was to be a servant leader instead of being. Wow. Uh, instead of meddling i have a question okay
1: am i the only one that thinks this fonte as much as i love elevators okay dude in 1996 to make your first single a very slow temple song that's like 88 bpms not not conducive to what i believe dance culture was in but that was in the south though atlanta that was that was was such a risky song yo in the
2: south for us man that was nah, was shit it wasn't risky for us we ran the fuck out of elevators like immediately because when i got that
1: like by that point i was like getting serviced by djs and whatnot and yes as a as an as a northeasterner like i was i was in the groove of where hip-hop was in that period between like 92 bpms and 100 bpms like very fast and when i put elevators on i just stared at the record like you know this is so yes. slow and spacey Literally. how am i going to wake make this work in my dj sets
4: and yet y'all went with it like there was no fear whatsoever i actually didn't know one way or another like to be honest with you right andre and big boy and rico way They came to the office and they were like, this is it, this is it, this is it. And I knew Andre. What I did know is that that Andre verse was, we all knew that. I mean, that was like seriously, like, damn, he's good. He's really good. Um, But as a song, I probably had the same opinion you did. I was like, this is a little slow. It's not that clear either. You know, like it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't sparkling. It was dark. Right. (laughs) And, so i had the same but but i really believed in i really believed in rico wade like rico wade was the leader and he was he was my ears man my eyes and my ears to to everything that that we were doing in that world of of outcast goody mob and even you know parental advisory is yes oh yeah pa absolutely PA right They, they were in the crew as well so I just listened to Rico, and it worked. And after it worked, my relationship with them was: you guys make your own decisions. I, if you want my opinion, I'll give you my opinion. But I'm not giving you my opinion unless you ask me. Yeah, is
2: that still your relationship with Big Boy now? Because yeah. y'all still like work. It's to still this day. to this day. Yeah. That's how y'all do. I
1: do what that's he amazing,
4: says. Man.
1: I do what. <laughs> okay, so without Rico's presence on speaker box, how? Do you trust your instincts? I mean, by this point, they're they're now a marquee act. They're your A-listers. And without the muscle of, of organized noise sort of under them, I mean, even though they're there right. somewhat, how shaky was it to navigate a double album of clearly two different sides? Right. And not only make it work, but make it one of their most, and, and to take them on stage. I was there that night. I couldn't believe that shit. How hard, not hard, or how worrisome were you to, like, go with your gut being the, I'm I'm assuming that you're now manning the ship for at least that album. Yes. That you didn't have yes. Rico
4: there to guide you. Right. So things that kind of changed, they really grew into their, they really had grown into it. I mean, this was after Stankonia right and and which was a massive success for them um and i mean the real story was it was big boy's solo album Mm -hmm. right and it was complete and it was was done and and i heard i like the way you move so i felt confident that we had like a big single and andre called because they weren't working together i mean this is fairly common knowledge, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. They weren't working together, and Andre called the office. Reed, when are you dropping Big Boy's album? I gave him the date. He's like, <clears throat> so if I want to drop an album with that, how much time do I have? And I think I told him, you got three weeks. He was like, three weeks? Ah! Okay.
1: What? Wait, so... <laughs> we don't know he this came story. Back with the love yeah, was love, was right? he in the
4: process? What, says,
0: okay. I, what?
4: I didn't what? know what he had recorded because he wasn't really talking about it at all. He wasn't talking about making a record. Big Boy was gone solo. We've already done a photo shoot. We've picked the single. We've put the date on the calendar. We're moving forward. And then I get that call from Andre. And he says, you know, how much time do I have? And that was the first time I had an indication that he wanted to make an mm-hmm. album. We had not talked mm-hmm. about it at all. And I told him three weeks and I just remember him saying, ah. okay. And he hung up.
1: He was probably done already. <laughs> it had, to so, uh, it
4: had to be. All I remember is that on the night that we had to like turn the album in for parts so we could manufacture, Mm-hmm. Andre had studios going everywhere. He had mastering going on. He had a couple of mix rooms going on. He had uh, he had an ensemble of studios going to make the deadline. He was working his ass off. I went to the studio to visit and heard some of the material, but uh, he finished it and sat down and played it for me. And I was I could not believe what I was hearing, man. And and he played me Hey Ya. And I was like, oh, my God. And and I didn't try to say, when, I didn't try to go into the like, okay, yeah, this is a smash. It, it, that that wasn't how I reacted. I was more blown away that you actually did this in three weeks? And I felt like you did. Like, Yo, right, you must have had this. There's no way you did this in three weeks.
1: Yeah, he, and, he did. Fonte and- has a theory, though. When Pete Rock was telling the story of how he made public enemies shut him down in 10 minutes. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. one of y'all said, like, because of the pressure, like, he didn't have time to overthink it. You're not thinking
2: it. Uh, no, nah, yeah. you're, yeah. you're just doing. Yeah. That's also Quincy. He talks about the, the the alpha state. Like, he talks about that, just recording.
1: Paralysis through analysis. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Just
2: just going. You're not thinking about it. You're just creating. That's right. You were
1: presented with this scenario twice. And I always wanted to know, how far did TLC get and going with that initial thing where I believe Lisa suggested, all three of us should make solo records
4: and- Oh, not very far. Okay. (laughs) Honestly, not very far at all uh, because T-Boz had made a couple of solo songs that for a soundtrack. I gotta remember the soundtrack. The kids now.
2: It was the touch myself record. Uh. I well, touched
4: myself. That's the song. Uh, All right. That was yeah.
1: I remember that. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking about the uh that Rugrats thing,
4: but no, that was that would have been after. But okay. so she did it and it was pretty clear to me that it was the ensemble that was the magic right and mm-hmm. i love t Boz. like i mean i loved all of them but i had a particular love for her style that raspy voice her kind of her the, she kind of approached it like a guy she was the only girl i've seen approach it like a guy but but uh and i just th- i thought she was so dope but it was the ensemble that was the the, the real winner there and then lisa made a solo album uh before she passed away um may she rest in peace i miss her so much she made a solo album and uh i i wasn't blown away by it i didn't think it was incredible at all you know and it was and it was it was the kind of music i i i should i should have loved it if it were good Mm It wasn't like outside of my thing, the way I sort of describe Goody Mob as Mm, outside of my thing. So I got to defer to them. This wasn't outside of my sweet spot, but I just didn't think it was great. And uh, Chili never actually tried to make a solo record that I can remember uh, until many, many years later. Uh, So that one didn't get that one didn't go very far. How did you balance, you know, a record
2: like Crazy Sexy Cool where it's on your label, but you're also writing and producing I didn't write for <laughs> you. Know, of course, you didn't do. Yeah, that wasn't you and Babyface together. No, like, no, and, uh... I, that
4: was when that was the last time uh, that I was a, a writer producer was uh, Seven Whole Days. Tony Braxton.
2: Ah, okay. That was the last okay, gotcha. time,
4: and after, and I did, and then I did a song that never made, never saw the light of day with um, Elton John. That Elton called and asked me to produce, right? Oh, um, wow. And it was for a. Um, a Curtis Mayfield tribute record it wasn't commercial at all. Um, okay, yeah, Elton was spending
0: was, time in Atlanta for a minute. I was like, "Were you the reason yeah, that Elton, Elton was, was spending in time a lot?" Yeah, um, yeah.
4: But I stopped. I, I stopped, and okay. uh, Kenny and I stopped working together. And I started spending too much time on the phone. I was transitioning into being an executive. I was mm-hmm. I was learning how to how independent promotion worked. I was learning how marketing worked. And I was so intrigued with the stuff I didn't know. And people were coming in and telling me about like Janet Jackson's marketing plan. I was like, what's a marketing plan? So I got, became curious <laughs> about everything. And, and I was hearing words like they shipped a hundred thousand. What's that mean, shipped a hundred thousand? I just became uh-huh. curious about the business. Yeah. I, I think I sort of fell out of love with producing And writing, and I was never a great writer. Kenny was a great writer. I was a good producer, but Kenny was a great writer. And I was a collaborator and I filled in some blanks and had some concepts here and there, but he was the great writer. Uh, So it was easy to to sort of step back because I didn't consider myself great at it in the first place. I felt, I felt very lucky.
2: So, with the, the the label, were was that primarily you running the label and face just doing the music, or was he involved on the label side as well? No,
4: I think if you ask him, he would say that he's always said that the label was kind of my thing, right? Gotcha. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I like the idea of signing talent and doing all that stuff, you know, and picking songs and you know. So for so for a record like a Crazy, Sexy, Cool,
2: where you know Babyface is doing. Uh, like a dig it on you or whatever, right? Yes. Is there no
4: conflict of interest? I actually had all of the producers competing and, and they didn't really know it. <laughs> like I had I had Dallas working on it first. He was the architect. Then I'd go play for Jermaine Dupree and be like, I know you could beat this. And then I <laughs> and then I, you know, then Kenny is competitive. You don't have to, you don't have to put a battery in Kenny's back. He's so competitive. So he sent his songs in. And then I went to Rico Wade last and said, here's what everybody else gave me. What you got? And he, he came over Waterfalls. Wow. wow. I love it. <laughs> so according to, according to, um, uh, executives at Arista outside of, uh, OutKast, they considered crazy, sexy, cool. My first time as an AR executive that mm. I, I wasn't the writer. I wasn't the producer. Uh, and that was, that's, and so I, if it was my first, I didn't see it that way. But if it was, I did okay
1: with, with no input from Clive at all. Like,
4: uh, Hey, oh yeah, maybe Clive, Clive, not once it was done. Clive had opinions about the singles and, uh, and we had, you know, Creep was the first single. I love Creep, by the way. Man, but, listen, that um, should still go off. So we shot a video for Creep. Wasn't very good. Was huh? Like, damn. So we shot a second video for Creep. Oh. Again, wasn't very good. I'm like, fuck, now I'm in Wait, trouble. Wait, what? Yeah, we shot two videos and they weren't good. The, the, the world never saw them. Yeah. And man. so I was embarrassed, so I switched singles. I said... Creep's no longer the single. We're going to go with this song called Kick Your Game that Jermaine Dupri did. Clive was oh, like, hold man. it, hold it, hold, hold it. On. Why are you changing singles? No. What is this? What's behind this? You have to explain, right? And Dallas Austin called like, yo, I know you're not like not putting my single out. Like he knew he had a great record. Uh, and so I had to come clean and say, well, truth be told, like I made two horrible videos and I'm just too embarrassed to tell everybody. So Clive <laughs> says, get it right. He said, get it right. So... I'm sitting with Diddy one day at the uh, at the Helmsley Palace Hotel in New York. I'm sitting with Diddy. I play him the TLC video, that's not good. And he looks at me and it's like, oh my God, like, bro, this is horrible. And he I don't he does not make me feel any better about it, right? But <laughs> while I'm showing him the video on one television, because I used to have this road case that I carried around with speakers and monitor mm-hmm. and everything, of like office in a case. I was extra while i'm playing it for him on the television there's a video with um in vogue and salt and pepper coat. what a man what a man what a man and i look at that video it looks way better than our video i'm like who directed that it's matthew Matthew roston yeah so i called matthew roston and i asked him to do uh creep and we got it right the third time, but we threw Man. two videos away to get to to the good one.
1: I will do anything wow. to find
4: those original videos.
0: In a situation like that, though, when when TLC got to repay the money back, do they got to pay for all three of those versions, or do they just pay for the one that made it?
4: Well, uh, let's look at it like this: we sell ten million albums. Okay,
0: they don't. Okay, there you go, right. sir. I don't
4: okay. know. Yes. I, honestly, if you want know the truth i don't know
0: i love it that's all i wanted to hear that's, that's how i got my that ass in bad. trouble
4: because i, I didn't know. Know. Like, did know like you know what? It's so busy <laughs> like trying on? to make the great record trying to make the great video i'm, like, well, I'm spending wait. people's money and not realizing yes. it you know i'm even
1: with anger because to sit in the geffen offices and be told your videos are one and done like there is no going back I can't believe that I'm hearing stories of we did like the video. Everything happens for a reason. It's okay. So we'll take man. it back, and then we'll take it back again, and so then right. we'll take it back. Th- I hear Mariah made four videos for Vision of Love, and I'm like, that's a very old school thing, though, man. No, like, that's so I mean, old. Just yeah. our label convinced us that, like, because we hated our videos, and right. like, wow, literally, and you couldn't t- do anything about it. Yeah, like you were stuck, either
3: yeah.
1: video or no video, like. Oh my God! Yeah, those roots videos
4: weren't too memorable. <laughs> that's why I
1: hate making videos.
4: Weird. Enough, <laughs> then, that... She's being mean to you. <laughs> no, <laughs> no that's, that's like, just... your videos are not too memorable. That's mean. <laughs> Listen, uh, you say that.
1: <laughs> the reason
0: that I am here is because I'm the roots' largest fan, so I can say a couple truthful things. I'm here because okay, I all tell
1: right, I, you. Know yeah, I'm I'm, I'm. I'm neither not bothered either way. No. Um, so okay, I I was always curious. I the call the night that. Left eye burnt the house down. Like, were you worried? Not worried about stopping the bag,
4: but it was morning, first of all. It was early morning. Oh, wow. It was early. Mo- we were, we lived that sounds in the same like a
1: nighttime crime, not a daytime no, crime.
4: <laughs> no, we lived in the same uh, subdivision. We both lived in Country Club of the South. My housekeeper at the time was taking my son, Aaron. She was taking him to school. He was in the kindergarten. All right. And, or, or maybe preschool, but and she called. I, I wanna say, I don't know if Pebbles was not home, or I don't know for whatever reason I <laughs> answered the phone. She said, I just drove by, Lisa's house is on fire. So I, I look outside, I see helicopters swarming. I'm like, oh shit. So I just start trying to find Lisa. I just start trying to find her, and I found her. Right. I called every number I had, everybody I knew, and I found her and she said she was OK. She said she didn't get hurt. She was OK. And she told me it wasn't on purpose. It was an accident. And um, I immediately went to protect her. And I have friends in the police force there, like the, the chief of police was was a friend. And I just asked him, like, can you just help me to protect her? Like, I don't want her to be arrested. I don't want anything to happen. So he helped me. We, we gave her uh, an entire floor at the Swiss Hotel in Buckhead. And with police, and no one could get on the floor. And she stayed there until uh, she had to go to court for it. And and then, you know, but yeah, I didn't think about anything except her safety. OK,
1: 94, 95, especially 96, 97 is probably one of the most tumultuous times In black sec. Yes. And you know, all right. The thing is is that we lived in Europe during this time period. So we really were sort of out of the literal crossfire. You Um, lived in Europe at that time? We 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 the the shortest story is that basically we realized Richard Nichols was was intuitive enough to the, the day that God rest his soul, Kirk. Cobain committed suicide. Rich said, the label's going to drop us because by this point, Aerosmith had went to Sony, Guns N' Roses wasn't coming up with another album, and now Nirvana's gone. And literally, like, those three acts and all the billions that they made enabled Geffen to have a black department. And we were their first act, and Rich sort of had the spidey sense that everybody's going to get the acts, so we better just grab our publishing money run to Europe, get a flat and then just become like the black version of the commitments like get a tour bus and just tour all over Europe. So we just lived there for like three years straight working. So we were really, we we hadn't met none of our peers, none of that stuff. Like we come back to record new albums, see our families, but for the most part, it's like six months touring in Europe and spot dates like all over the United States touring. But for the most part we had missed a lot of the stories that we heard between like what what was the trouble brewing between like executives and you just knew you knew how toxic that environment was how frightening was it being a black executive and more important how did you avoid getting sucked into just the toxicness of it all where beef is now like a regular thing between executives you know
4: yeah that's a great question and i have to tell you like i was really concerned i was really concerned about it and because i was i was very close to puffy right and I helped start bad boy, you know, I get help, help get him the deal for bad boy and I'm very proud of that, by the way. Um, Cause I actually wanted him to be an A&R guy at the face. And after one meeting, I realized that this is, this is nobody's employee. This guy's a, this guy's special, you know? <laughs> right. uh, and yeah, I was concerned about it, man. Cause I felt, I felt like Atlanta wasn't the East or the West. So we were kind of, we weren't viewed as the competition for either the East or the West, right? Whatever we were doing in Atlanta, even though like we were, we were, we were having hits, but culturally the impact of the West coast was really huge, right? With Snoop and Dre and Pac and all of that. And then the bad boy on the East coast, those things were like very front facing, And what we did at LaFace wasn't as front facing like our artists were. But Kenny and I weren't like that. We weren't there was no chain. There was no you know, we weren't like that, you know, so. But I can only imagine that the more success you got,
1: the more it puts you out front to become sucked into that.
5: Because I
1: don't think I don't think that there would be a bad boy death row thing if Puffy were releasing records produced by me. I mean, not to be self-deprecating, but I'm just saying that obviously there's a competition thing on what label is going to wind up on top. And you're actually selling more units than both those labels, at least for their artists alive. Right, right, right. I mean, you could have been an easy target.
4: I thought I was avoiding it, man, as best I could, and I knew everybody. I mean, I seriously. So you have relationships with Shook, and you have a relationship with yes. Puffy, and yes, yes. And I did. I did know. I, I did not know Biggie, and I did not know Tupac. Right. I never. I can't say I knew either of them. I probably had a one handshake with each person, and in a in a sort of passing, but I didn't know them, um, and. Yeah, so I have I tried hard, and I won't kid you, I am nobody's tough guy. I tried desperately to avoid ever being in the room. I wouldn't even go to the. So would you go
1: to Jack the Rappers and all those things?
4: Before I would, but uh, there was a time. Were they important?
1: Was that important to
4: go to, or was that just a vanity thing? You know what? It was important because all all the DJs were there. Like all the D DJ- and at that time, DJs could make a decision about which records they played, right? Before before the conglomerates took over, you know, okay. DJs had some say. They had a say in what they played. And, and so we did, and all of the labels uh competitors were there. You got a chance to see what the other label had, what they had coming. And if you needed to go back and do better or find another song or find another act. So and it was it was good camaraderie it was really good until it wasn't when it got bad it got bad and and that's when I stopped going you know but I just tried to avoid it man and and just stay to myself as much as I could and trying to sort of diminish my presence as, as crazy as that sound right I didn't want to be you know we didn't even have photo we didn't take pictures of nothing we just stayed in the background as much as we could.
1: Was there an act that you kind of purposely passed on signing just because, like, uh uh this might cause smoke for the label or
4: probably like I don't remember a name, but I I didn't actively look for artists in New York and LA. <laughs> I didn't. I really didn't. I didn't. I ain't even gonna lie, right? I did not actively look. And so I was getting Chattanooga, Tennessee. Atlanta Georgia you know you you know what I mean uh Des Moines Iowa I was was, speaking
1: of Chattanooga Tennessee can we finally settle this once and for all can you
4: please tell us (laughs) the can we talk 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 story (laughs) no I saw I saw I saw what uh I saw what Tevin said I never had a say in that because Kenny wrote that song and he produced it on Tevin Campbell and that was it. Like there was never like a conversation like, should we give it to Usher or should I? There was never a conversation. Kenny and I uh, were not working as writer, producer partners at that moment. That that he did completely on his own and gave it to Tevin. Tevin sang the hell out of it uh, and it worked. So there, there was never any back and forth.
1: So you never had a a, uh, Dick Griffey moment where like LaFace gave a song to someone that you know you could have used that song for your artist? And it's like, yo, come on, dog. Like, I could have used that. I asked you last week if you had something for TLC, and you said no.
4: (laughs) No, no, it wasn't really like that. Um, And I was also very clear about Kenny's ambitions as a writer, right? Kenny wanted the greatest artist possible to sing his songs and it wasn't about it for him it was never about whether it was on LaFace or whether it was on Arista or Epic or he never thought about it that way he thought about it as um like the song Girlfriend that Pebbles got the reason she got it is because he thought her voice was the right voice for the song it was originally for Vanessa Williams Mm -hmm. right and he thought he said it's not right for Vanessa because he listened to as a as a musician, as an artist, as a writer, producer. He listened to the voices, and he made his decisions based on the voices. And how do you argue with that? There's
1: definitely a big difference between the pink that signed to LaFace first few records and the artist that she morphed into. So how what's what's the what's the conversation in the metamorphosis where? You know, there's a beginning and then there's definitely a separation from what Mm -hmm. she was. And you're part of that process. So, like, at what point do you realize maybe I should loosen the strings somewhat and see where they go with it?
4: Right. So first album, she did that album as a member of the group choice and then they disbanded and we continued the process. And some of the songs that were made for choice, she kept them. But we struggled in the beginning. We really struggled because she was still growing. She was very young and she was still finding herself, finding her style. And so we the first album, we did the best we could do, right? It was called Can't Take Me Home. Loved her concepts, loved her, how she thought about it. And I loved her voice and her energy. She was incredible. Musically, it was a little bit undefined and all over the place. When it got to, so, but we had we had a hit with um, with There You Go.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: and uh, And she had a second hit called Most Girls. Not as big a hit, but it did really well. So when it came to her second album, She hooked up with Dallas Austin. Uh, Her and KP basically oversaw it. Um, And then she hooked up with Linda Perry. And when she first brought it to me, I was like, wait a minute. You're abandoning, like, the urban thing that you started on your first album. Are you sure about that? And she was like, yeah, I'm not trying to repeat that. I'm Mm -hmm. on to something really special. And I was like, ah okay I don't know <laughs> I was like i tell you what if you feel passionately about it I'm going to step back do your thing right and my exact words to her were because I was a, I, I got this from Dick Griffey I said I'm going to give you an opportunity to fail
1: never <laughs> obtain yourself okay
4: yeah I said that and uh, I didn't even really know what it meant but I said it because Dick Griffey said it anyway <laughs> um, <laughs> and so she did it she came back and she played me Get the Party Started, 18 Wheeler. And she played me all those songs. And I was like, oh my God, this girl's made a she's made a real album.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, and we went, went went to work, hooked her up with Dave Myers. They made a great video. And she was off to the races. After that, when it came to her third album, I wasn't involved at all. I wasn't involved at all. She got a new manager, Roger Davis, very famous manager who also manages Tina Turner.
1: Yeah, Roger Davis.
4: Roger yeah. Davis. So her and Roger kind of, they did it all and just turned it in. Like I wasn't involved at all. And when it was done, I didn't think it was particularly good, honestly. And um, and I left the company right as it was time to release it. So, uh, and it didn't do that great.
1: Well, I don't understand when... LaFace just amalgamates into Arista, but do I recall when you actually went back to school? I did. Because Swiss did the same thing. Like, what is this? Yeah, I did.
4: So what happened is, I got contacted by the Bertelsman the company that owned Arista. BMG, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: BMG. The head of BMG visited me. Came to Atlanta. Visited me. This was early too, man. This was like probably 94, 94. And that early on, they said, we would like to, we want you to prep yourself because at some point we want you to take over Arista Records. And I was like, yeah, right. That's what I thought to my I I didn't even believe it. 94. Okay. So a couple of years go by and they call again. And Instead, this time they don't say Arista. They said, we would like for you to go back to school. We'd like you to go to school. We can get you enrolled in a program at Harvard. You'll have to go and stay on campus. You got to stay for 10 weeks. You cannot run the company. You can't talk to your artists. You can't talk to executives. You can talk to your family but we need you on the campus and we need you to put in 50 to 60 hours a week doing uh, case studies and living on the co- campus and really studying, um, international business. Wow. Like, okay. It's like a jail sentence. I like the idea of it because I didn't go to college and I regretted Not going to college because I, I opted to be a musician. I opted to go on the road. That was college to me. So I liked this idea. So I went. And I stayed there for my 10 weeks and um, it was really hard because it was really, really hard. So I got kids on campus to tutor me uh, and help me get through it. And I made friends with other people in in, that were in my in my dorm. Uh, So it was like the students were teaching each other. So
1: you really had to go to Harvard and stay at Harvard and do you had to
4: do that. Yeah. Yeah, I lived on campus, and I'm, a, and at this point, like I'm a, I, I live in Atlanta. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a musician, half musician, half executive. You know, I'm a hybrid. I'm a very weird hybrid. I don't know how to dress. I don't know how to walk. I don't know how to talk. I don't know which handshake to use. I'm like completely confused. I'm a fish out of water in the greatest institution in the world, apparently. Right. Uh, so it was very intimidating. Everybody seems so smart. I mean. The accents, and you know, when you hear when you hear when you hear guys with Indian accent talking about EBITDA, it sounds smarter. You know, Or guys from the UK, (laughs) they always sound smarter than we do. Right. Um, Right. So it's just all very intimidating. And then I found my groove Right, right around halfway point. I started to find my groove and 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 figured it out. And at the end of it, I graduated and I didn't know if I would what were some of the things you learned from that program like how did that we really studied businesses we studied things like things that you would love like we studied decisions that Phil Knight made to make nike a success we discovered you know things like that like and we would take it in steps like they would present us a case they would show us the, the dilemma or where the company could go one way or another and then they would test us basically, basically like, what decision would you make here? And then we would go to the next sort of chapter of the story. Um, and it was just basically case studies, studying each person's case, not only in entertainment but, or, or, or in apparel, but everything from public utilities to, you know, hospital to grocery stores to um, automotive, Toyota, uh, to Disney, we studied we studied businesses.
1: There's of course a famous book out now called the Harvard Report, where they first did a, a case study of Clive Davis. Yes, s- embracing black music. Were they still using that book as a? No, we
4: didn't. We never got there. But they have so many, like they, they collect case, they collect case studies from all over the world. And each professor would select the cases that he wants to use in, uh, in his classrooms. Um, But there's no, there's no set stories. I knew about the Clive. They actually did one with me uh, about, uh, it was like the study of black music, right? Um, And, they did, I know a lot of people that they've actually done the reports. They don't publish them all. They don't actually uh, use them all. But they just basically collect information. And 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 they teach it. And and it's good. The way we went about it, like it was intimidating at first. Uh, until I got my groove and realized that there were things I knew that some of the people in the room they didn't know. know. Yeah. Once yeah. I got that confidence, I was like, okay. Because uh, they study in business, but you've
2: been running one.
4: <laughs> yes.
3: Change the drive into work and traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything AT&T.
1: Okay, I have one confessions question. I kind of consider Confessions the end of the parenthesis of whatever. I mean, I, I really can't tell like what the first mega album. Maybe Carol King's Tapestry was right. like one of the first mega-selling records. Um, but you know, Usher's Confessions comes at a time when streaming culture is about to confuse the whole entire industry. Where buying a tangible no record is a vote. So this is kind of a, a a a part one and part two thing. When when Confessions was said and done, did you realize then that there will never be another mega selling album of
4: this nature wow. again in the music business? Wow. No. I didn't think it. That's incredible that you should say that. But no, yeah, well, I didn't, confessions is the like after that. Then that's the last. That's the last like diamond album.
1: Yes, like literally. Because after that, streaming comes in and ruins it. But I, I was, I was asking that only because of his Atlanta roots. I always wanted to ask a CEO at least what their feelings of what streaming was threatening to be. And of course, you know there there's the the Napster situation that sort of confused people and had them in their feelings, and then accepting iTunes and whatnot, even down to uh, DJ Drama's arrest. Like, can you talk about what the what the at least the scary environment for what music was about to become? Now, somehow you managed to.
4: There was a piece in between that, which was downloads. And downloads, while they weren't physical, yeah. were still a la carte. They were still like sales. So the next the next chapter of successes were measured through downloads, right? Uh some physical, not that much, you know, but uh CDs were dwindling badly. Vinyl was completely out of out of the count, uh, and downloads were the thing. So we still had. But we, as president,
1: we, did you feel the pressure that I gotta figure out something quick? Like all my record all my label, like my artists are went from 10 million to now to sell three million is an achievement. Although it's um, not your fault per se, it's just right, where the time is right. going. Yeah. How so, how are you dealing with that as a CEO, like and as an executive?
4: Yeah, the idea was just to not bottom out. The idea was yes, the sales are dwindling and It's across the board. It's not one company that's dwindling. It's not one artist that's that's sales are dwindling. The entire industry is going down the tube. Napster's introduced uh, the download. uh, So we're fighting piracy at at a rate that we've never had to fight piracy, at least that we know of. So with that being the reality, it was just get the best artists and the best records you can and do the best you can and I never really measured it against like I didn't even know that fact. I didn't know that "Confessions" like was maybe the last diamond. I didn't even know that "Confessions" and the "Speaker Box" yeah. were the last
1: of the Mohicans. The last. Like I
4: didn't even realize that. So I didn't. I didn't in my mind compete with it. I didn't think of it that way. I thought of it more as um, meaningful bodies of work, like, which I felt Kanye made as an example, right? Um, and I was really proud of everything for the time i was around him i was proud of those records and i felt that they were i felt they measured up to whatever we did at with outcast whatever we did with usher and i also had like mariah carey's emancipation of mimi I right think. and that felt like the for me that felt like um, the follow-up to confessions <laughs> Right. With some of the same kind of sounding records. That's how I looked at it. But I didn't look at the sales and I didn't look at the, the challenge that we had as an industry uh, as a threat. I looked at it more as, yes, we need to figure this out. And once you come to Def Jam,
1: like you kind of have to start all over again. Like, what is it to meet your Ooh. especially coming from where they came from as far as like the 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 era of Julie and and uh, Leor. Right. Oh, yeah. Like to come in there and to be the new guy, like was it feeling oh, with side eyes and no? Oh one my god, that? man, it
4: was crazy. It was it was, was crazy. Tracy it was nice to you? Tracy wasn't there when I got there. Okay. She came once. Once Jay was president, right? Uh, but man, it was um, it was scary because it was a real. First of all, I didn't realize. Here's the thing about Def Jam. Like, if you're a part of that culture, you realize how important that culture is. If you're not a part of it, you don't really know. So as crazy as this sounds, I didn't know that it was what it was. Like, it wasn't that to us in Atlanta. I mean, it was a successful company. It was big. We respected it. We knew Russell. We knew Rick Rubin. We knew Lira Cohen. We knew Chris Lighty. We knew LL Cool J. We knew it, but we didn't think of it as the institution that it was we didn't see it that way. Uh, so when I walked in, I was shocked by, I was shocked by it all. I was shocked by the voice of the community and their opinions about anything that happened. I didn't realize that Def Jam belonged to the streets. It belonged to the people like, you know, it funk master flex had a say in it. every, I'm just making up names, anybody, right? Everybody had a say in it. So when I came in as, as a new chairman of the company, Coming from my background, I was immediately made to feel uncomfortable, right? Executives were taking out articles in the newspaper and in Billboard magazines, talking about how I wasn't fit for it and how, you know, how would I know how to go talk to DMX? Like, you know, it was and and I felt it. I really did. I felt it. And I didn't feel welcome at all. Um, And. I love Julie. I think she's one of the most remarkable executives in the world. I love Kevin. I think he's one of the most remarkable executives in the world. Neither of them made me feel welcome. And, and um, oh, wait.
1: So, they Kevin and Julie were still there when yes. you
4: came. Yes. Oh,
1: I, I kind of thought they all left together.
4: Yeah. They, they were there when I got there. Uh, only Leor had left. Um, and I didn't feel very welcome. Right. And, um, and I didn't feel welcomed by uh, the artists either, the artists at that time. You know, um, I love them. Right. Method Man, Redman, Ghostface, L.O. Cool J. The only one. And Jay-Z was like on semi-retirement. Right. Rockefeller. And the artist that embraced me was Kanye West. Wow. That was the one that embraced me. right? So that helps. So, that helped a lot and this is early kanye before he released his first album right uh although it was already done and slated to be released when i came to the company but uh i met him and he said to me because you understand outcast you'll probably understand me and that's how that was the first conversation we ever had and and i locked in with him and then mariah called And because her and I wanted to work together for years, I tried to sign her at Ariston when she first left Sony. And so I had Mariah embracing me, but no one else. So Mariah says, I'm on the phone with Mariah. This is really good. she says, you know how you can put the fire out? I was like, how? She said, make Jay-Z the president.
0: (laughs) Oh, man, no. That was
4: Mariah. You don't like that idea?
0: No. Well, are you asking she's, the wrong
1: person? I'm trying being to overprotective.
4: I being. I was me.
0: too I was way overprotective of the roots. I had a whole conversation with Jay on the radio about the way he was handling his presidency and the way he was handling all the Philadelphia acts at the time. So, no, as a radio person and for the Philadelphia person, I was not feeling that. But the artist, he's great.
4: Oh, yeah. OK. Anyway. But but, but you know what? When I when I so Mariah put the idea in my head, mm-hmm. I presented it to Jay, didn't get an answer right away eventually we were able to come to terms and he became the president of def jam and at that point that made the peace and everybody left me alone um and
3: <laughs> wow. but method but
0: method so man wasn't happy ghostface wasn't uh,
1: uh, that's that's L-L. something i
4: that's something i did not know wow yeah and a lot of the artists like i i met a few artists that that have said to me that they because it's a two-way street, when you become, you're the head of a label and you come in to an established company, you're auditioning for them. Mm-hmm. It's not right. the other way around. It's not the artist need to prove to you, it's you need right. to prove to the artist, right? Right.
0: right? And
4: and many of the artists were like, we're not even going to give you a chance because a, a, we think you might be R&B, B, we think you pop. Either way, we don't think you're hip-hop, so I'm not even coming to your office, right? So um, so that was a very difficult thing. And I, and I was like, yo, okay. I hear y'all. I still have the biggest selling hip hop album of all time. Do yeah. I get a, do I get, do I get a, a, a meeting? Cause y'all ain't beat the speaker box below yet. So
1: can I at least get a meeting? You know, uh, I can't even believe that you would have to beg for a meeting. That's crazy.
4: I, I, I was not embraced. It's okay though. Like, I'm not saying that like I was, Come I on. was cool. Uh, and I just embraced those that embraced me, and we and we ended up we created a different kind of label. As Chris Lighty, may he rest in peace, loved him. He said, This is uh LaFace Jam, this is not Def Jam. <laughs>
1: <Wow>. <laughs> one, one very unusual Def Jam signee at the time that I, I considered. Can you talk about what it took to market
4: and break uh, Justin Bieber? Oh, yes, so. I love that. That was a um, that was that was a gift from Usher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Usher came in. He said, I have a gift for you. He came in. I thought he was gonna bring me cigars I or wine it. or something. I
0: love this story. I love Human this story. Yes. <laughs> of white men. I love it. That
4: was a gift. Yes. And he walks in with 14-year-old Justin Bieber. Justin comes in in and he's beating on the table, right? And he's playing the piano, he's playing the guitar and he's singing, he's jumping around, he's talking. He's a mile a minute. And I'm just staring at him like, this star, like, I mean, I got my star hat on. I'm like, this is ace, this dude is Mm -hmm. a star. I'm telling you guys, I thought I, I ain't gonna lie. I thought i met Elvis. Wow. Wow. I seriously, I was like, this dude right here, cuz the girls all talked about how pretty his face was. Not not pretty like in a negative way, but in a in a way that they loved him, right? All the girls loved him. Mm-hmm. And then artists the not all artists, but many artists like kind of liked him. And um so we we went about making the record and the first record. with Strategy, you want to do strategically. I have this theory that blue-eyed soul is the music that has the greatest opportunity for global success that's yep. my, that's my opinion <laughs> yeah uh, so we put him on black radio, first thing out, put him on v103 and it was that's, wow, that's where it started. He had a song called "One time before baby Okay. And we put and we put it on v103 and and we that's what we did man we we went black first,
0: mhm-.
4: And then we put it on rhythm and then we crossed it over, but we wanted to, we wanted to give him, uh, some black foundation and he had, he had the check, the endorsement because of Usher Usher. and me. So he had real and, and, and Dream and Tricky were making his records. So he had, he was covered.
0: Wish he could have went the other way because wasn't it a battle between Usher and, was it Justin?
4: Because bo- Timberlake. Yes, yeah. they both wanted him. It was. They both yeah. wanted him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then and after that, uh, then Kanye embraced him, you know, and it, it just kind worked out. Everyone fell in line. Break everybody else,
1: yeah. Alright, I'm going to slowly wind this down. Okay. And we, I can't believe that at this point,
4: oh my god, this, uh, yeah. this is like the old school. Knocking this is near yeah, four we're hours. Foe.
2: Yeah, we're knocking on four.
1: This might this might be three episodes. My sister
4: just smiled when you said we're gonna wind this down. Yeah, I seen her, I seen her walk
0: past about three four times. Like I'm not. I'm just saying. I, I ain't saying
1: it. <laughs> I mean, at this rate, where you've worked at labels and whatnot, do you believe in the theory that I hear people say all the time, like it's going to be the end of labels, no more labels. If it is going to be the end of labels, what will happen to music next? Because I do feel like something is going to eventually give. Like I yeah. feel like this this decade that we're in the 20s, everything is giving. So should music follow suit? Are I you don't, pre- I are don't. you prepared to aid in the next step of it? Or is it sort of like, all right, I've I've done my bit. I'm gonna sit out.
4: Uh I'm definitely not done. <laughs> first okay. of all, I ain't sitting out. Nothing, man. They gotta do, they gotta, you know. They tried to take my head off. I still got my head. So sorry. Um, um, So I don't believe in that. I think that labels have historically not been well loved, well liked and for a lot for 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 the right reasons, probably. But throughout time, people have not late record labels do not have a great public perception no matter what it is, no matter, you know, culturally, maybe so like people like Def Jam or people like Bad Boy or Motown or whatever. Right. But culturally, it may have a lot of impact. But the public perception are that record companies are generally um, um, Brooks, n- not upstanding people. Uh, so people have always wanted to see the demise of record labels. I think that. And so now we live in an era of independence, right, where And that's good in that and there's bad in that, right? The the bad in that is that there is no barrier to entry. There is no filter. So everything is out. Everything is on Spotify. Everything is on Apple. Everything is on SoundCloud. Everything, everything. Like there's no filter for it, right? And, And so now we're leaving it to... The editorial people uh, or the music editors to make the decisions about which songs are good enough to be on the world's biggest playlist, but they're picking from sixty thousand a day. I like to, so I don't, I don't see that as, I don't see that as great, right, Um, at all, because I like the idea that tastemakers, curators of music. Passionate music people make decisions about what they love based on their experiences and those things get a shot. Not that the other things shouldn't get a shot, Mm -hmm. but I don't like the idea that it's a free for all. And there's a fallacy there that you can be Chance the Rapper and you can be independent and make it all the way to the top but as i understand it he's probably got 50 like employees and a lot of money and all kinds of stuff that's not exactly the same thing as being just a starving kid in Columbus Ohio who wants to be independent right that's not the yeah, same he has, thing. he has money so if you're a kid you if you're a 15 year old kid in Columbus Ohio and you don't have a record label and you're told to do it on your own man you don't know what to do you do not know what to do right so that means that you're going to You're going to put your music out. It might get wasted. You're going to waste a lot of time. You're going to get discouraged, and we might actually not see the next star because you've been discouraged before you get an opportunity to come out of the gate. Whereas, if someone embraces you and put their arm around you and says, "You know, I believe in you," and oh, by the way, I'm leaving out something very important: Mm -hmm. you're you're a a a highly trained, wildly successful, massively talented musician. And you respect people who put the time in that you put in. Whether you like their music or not like their music, you respect the fact that all of you guys are are seasoned executives and seasoned professionals, and you respect people who do. There's something to be said for the people who are just doing it as a hobby, who aren't serious, who aren't as serious as you are, who aren't as talented as you are, who who, who haven't been challenged the way you have, who have never been on stage, right? There's something to be said for the fact that we need the music infrastructure to tr- as a training ground, we, right? Somebody needs to know what it's like. I mean, as, that's so. Anyway, my feelings about it are I'm very passionate. So, how do we get back? Do we? Get,
0: do we get back? It's not.
4: It's, it's not actually or, gone. Okay. Record labels make more money than they ever made.
1: Huh? Is that true? Record labels make more money than they ever made. I truly thought that. Record labels were kind Good. of on Me too. Defi- a Defibrillator Ooh. status. Uh, yeah,
4: oh, this, yeah. Hell no, this bro. A Record labels now. are killing it. Universal Music is 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 worth over fifty billion dollars, bro. A music company. I'm not talking about film or TV or tech. I'm talking about music content that you created. Right,
0: but but right. Universal at this point owns so many properties in that way, right? Like, not any, it's not as many individuals. I mean, they they've, been,
4: they've been gobbling up labels for years, but the right. point is that, like, they are making an apps, the record labels are making an absolute fortune,
0: okay?
4: An absolute fortune. Uh, and I don't begrudge it, it's beautiful, you know. Um, I wish I was right there getting bonuses right now, and I'm not mad at it, but. The point of it is that the infrastructure hasn't died. It takes a record label to say, okay, hey, Lil Nas X, that's an example. Lil Nas X, he comes out with his old town road. It becomes some kind of a phenomenon independently, by the way, it gets picked mm. up by a major label. This is an artist like him or not. This is an artist that has a massive creative vision, right? And, and it needs to have the kind of financial support yeah. that he can, he, he can get that off. We can't do that independently, those ideas are too big. Honestly, those ideas those ideas are very expensive. Otherwise, we get a we get a fraction of who this artist could be. If he wasn't signed to Columbia Records, I'm saying that he would be a success, but he'd be a fraction of the artist that he could be because now he has the infrastructure to really get it off. He's the
2: artist that fits in that mold. I mean, for me, when I talk to young artists coming up. My thing is just if you're going to sign to a label, if you're going to do that, my advice is if you're going to do it, you might as well play big. You might as well swing for the fences. Like, That's the only no reason need. to do it. That's the only reason. If you just want to if you're just truly an independent person, not just as a label, but just as a creator, you know, what I mean, if you just want to look, I just want to do my shit when I feel like it, put it out when I feel like it. Great. But a major label is not for you. Like, that's not what that is.
4: Yeah, it's not um, for everybody. But to me, the game is not for everybody. That's what I'm trying to say is that it's not for everybody. And it shouldn't be so easy to get in. It's hard. It takes it's harder. You can't just get in the NBA because you like basketball. Right.
0: Can it be some gray in between what you're saying and what's going on right now? Is there more gray than your.
4: Allowing? possibly possibly okay. i'm open i'm open-minded <laughs> okay. so that's okay. quite possible okay. <laughs> but what i'm but but what i'm what what i am what i am uh a, a strong advocate of is are you serious about the game are you serious about this because Ooh, shoot. Like, I, I don't like the idea like this is not this is not for hobbyists
0: serious don't mean what it used to mean serious i mean know that.
4: and that bothers me
0: Areas right? don't mean trade. Reading your trades so, and reading all your, your
1: books. They don't. It don't. But, but are you the last of the Mohicans? Like I know there's you. I know there's Sylvia. I don't know if Doug Morris is still in the game or not. But you know, I, like someone else is running. De- I don't know who's running Def Jam now, but someone so, that my man Tungy. Oh Tungy. yeah, 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 yeah. Tungy's running Def Jam. Yes,
4: and he's really <laughs> talented. Yes, and and yeah. I'm I'm happy. I'm proud. I will support and Shut promote and, and do anything. He is really talented and he's about that music, he's about culture. He's bringing African culture into the country with. Yeah, he's looking forward and, and he's doing it based on talent. He's doing yeah. it based on qualification. And, and he's not just looking at, at at data and saying I should sign this because it's streaming. He's looking at the, and he's he's listening to the music. And he did, he did it with keep cool. cool. It was
2: very much it very much reminded me his trajectory was very much like you in the sense that keep cool was like his Laface, so yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean. And then you know he came and they brought him in to run yeah. so, yeah. To
4: yeah. By the way, that like I don't know what the roots are exactly up to recording uh-uh. artist wise, if it was me. As a music curator, now Def Jam is the perfect place, man. Well, guess what?
1: (laughs) We, you know, you know, the thing where like, I I, I don't know the movie or the the sitcom example of like, when you think you're, you're like, that's your last statement and you like burn the house down or like, you're the father, like, and I'm leaving the family and you leave and then you come back because you forgot your keys. Uh, it, we just got reminded by Def Jam. Oh, by the way, I remember what we said, but you guys actually do owe us one more record. So it's like...
4: I think this is a great thing. Because because I think yeah. that I, I, a, I know that he loves you. I know that he loves the roots and and understands it. I, I and love you, it's man. also possible that he might make a suggestion or two that you might like, right? About Try this yes. or try that, right? I think it's, that to me, literally all
1: the signings, I feel like, are the roots' grandchildren, so yes. Oh, I,
0: oh, children. They are.
1: That's what
4: I'm trying to say. That's exactly yes. what I'm trying to say. Right. That that one, to me, you know, uh, as someone you didn't ask, <laughs> right? That, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that works. I got it. Before we, go, before we go,
2: man, I know you have, I just wanted to say this, man. You played a very... And I'm so happy we are having this chance to have this conversation. Uh, you played a part in my career that I'm sure you have no idea you did. But um, this is back in like 2007. You had a group on your on Dev Jam Play Circle that they were through DTP. And so um, my man, Denon Porter, shot him. he hit me to do some records. He was like, yo, man, I'm burnt out. I need just some hook ideas, whatever. And I was like, all right, cool, whatever. So I just referenced a couple hook ideas for him and sent them off. And I didn't think nothing else of it. And so the song that I did it was a song called Paper Chaser. And I just sang it as a reference. And so the joint ended up, I didn't find out until like later that the song actually made the record. And so I ran into uh, Titty and Dollar. We was at BT Wars in 07. And uh, me and Dollar was talking and he was like, oh my God. He was like, I was like, yo, I'm fine, man. He was like, oh, yo, what's up? And I'm like, what the hell? And he said, man, the thing with that record, he said, we sent it in and he said, we was thinking about like getting Akon on it because you know, Akon was going up at that time. He was like, we was thinking about getting like Akon or somebody went on it. He said, but L.A. Reed was like, yo, who's the dude that's singing on it? I like him. Just, it sound good like that. Just keep it. You know what I'm saying? That's and so cool. uh, I just want to say thank you LA so much. Style. That really, that really put, uh, yeah, it really gave me just a lot of confidence and belief. I'm like, yo, this dude. A battery in, in your fucking. Woo! Oh, I was like, yo. Like, that's, great. That's-, that's, so nah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, man. That really meant a lot.
4: Thank that's you. That's great. I'm so happy to hear that.
1: Well, thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I appreciate this. Yeah. Uh, on behalf of Fontaine Oh, Oh, hey, real quick. Thank you for putting out of by
4: pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, Amir, you uh, are like you, like you're the dopest dude in this business, man. Like just that's got. I just I really love and appreciate you, man. Like you, you just yeah, you make me proud to be a part of this thing.
1: Well, I I think you you. represent us well, and I appreciate you for not not dropping me on my birthday. I'll
4: I'll (laughs) never forget. I I think (laughs) by the way. I don't think that's the truth, but I'm going to let you have it. Rich,
0: that probably was Rich trying to get him to finish some that's shit. Some... That was
4: what that was. Boy,
0: I don't
1: even know, know how you do that. You... <laughs> I called you on my birthday.
4: I remember and... that. Listen, I remember that. But on me anyway. Have a, on
1: behalf of Unpaid Bill and Sugar Steve. Sorry, Steve. we
3: Once again, hogged all your questions. It's all good. On. I've been reading my uh, recent episode of Black Beat Magazine the whole time.
4: Yeah, you, tap, you tapped out on me, Sugar. You tapped out on me, but it's all good.
1: All right, <laughs> on behalf of Lightyear and Fonticolo and the great LA Reed, this is yes. Quest Love Supreme, and uh, we'll see you on the next go round. <laughs> West Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. There's no distance too far for the
6: perfect trip.
0: Hi, checking in for...
6: Or the perfect table.
0: Hey, where are you? Coming!
6: And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip.